Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Good morning, church. Um, as you've heard, my name is Janice, and uh, if you don't know already, and uh, yeah, so this morning, uh, I'm just excited to be able to, I guess, uh, you know, share a little bit of uh, my journey in this particular spiritual practice, okay? And, uh, and, but just before we go right into it, I'm just going to do a quick recap and just check how many of you have been talking about this and sharing about this and just journeying with the series uh, in your LGs? Yeah, some uh, personally, uh, or maybe you've even like shared it with people around you, your family, at work, anyone? How's that going? Yeah, mm, one hand. Uh, but I think most of us in our LGs have been just talking about it, and uh, if you haven't been, we encourage you to jump on this and at least just really go into the notes, and because there are some handles in there, that's really good to do as a community or individually, right? And uh, recap, how many of you remember what was talked about last Sunday? Sabbath, right? Not feasting, right? <laughs> the, the first spiritual practice, Andre said light and easy, started off with was fasting, right? And then the next one was Sabbath. And today we're going to talk about something that is also uh, kind of near to my heart. And uh, uh, I hope that it will be, if it not is already, would be near to your hearts as well. Because this is one of the most essential practices and really sometimes most uh, neglected, okay, in our walk with Jesus. And uh, so we've done fasting and, and Sabbath. And uh, remember this chart. I want to show you the nine pathways that Andre introduced uh, to us and sh- showed us, the sacred pathways. Now, the first one is something that I am naturally drawn to. Okay? It's not, probably not my top, but it's, it's kind of quite up there. And uh, how I came to know this, I didn't know this about myself, was when I was about 17, and uh, so I come from the city of KK, Kota Kinabalu, not Kandang Kerbawa. <laughs> anyway, it's not a city. Okay, most of you are probably born there, or maybe the, well, I don't know. But okay, Kota Kinabalu, and I come from there, and there's a mountain there called Mount Kinabalu, right? So when I was 17, it was the first time that I had a chance to climb with a bunch of friends. And so we went up this mountain, and I'm not, so, so I think I was fitter when I was in secondary school. I think. Yeah, right? <laughs> Most of us, because we had to do PE. And uh, so I was, I guess, average fit. Didn't train. It was like on a whim. Well, let's go climb, okay? Oh, okay, sure, it's fun. Okay? So I'm going, wow, how hard can it be, right? So I go on this climb, and then I think there were about 15 of us, some uh, mixed guys and girls. So we eventually, what happened, what panned out was, I really discovered I am of average fitness because uh, those who are really fit have gone way far ahead, and then those who are less healthy uh, or less fit were far back behind, okay? And so the guides would often stick with the front and the back, leaving me for most of the climb. It's a kind of a two-day climb all alone, right, uh, with just changing landscape before me, and, you know, and it, the weather was beautiful, the skies, the clouds, it was just awesome, okay, and I knew that I liked the mountain from afar, 
but I never knew I really liked the mountain until I had this climb. And so I discovered as I climbed, and I have to, right, kind of go really slow. And I climbed it so slowly because I'm of average fitness, okay? I did not train, and I was forced to because I can't go any faster just because, okay? If I go any faster, I just land on flat, like Andre one time. So I go, <laughs> <laughs> right, that story. If you, you don't know the story, you gotta listen to the podcast. So then I was climbing slowly and I realized that started some of the verses just came flooding into my mind as I climbed. And it was almost like maybe this cry for help, like, oh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And it became this almost meditative climb. And I don't know how to explain it. And, 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 and from that point onwards, whenever I do climb this mountain, it was like a, a pilgrimage for me. I don't know if that makes sense. Because it was one of the ways that I experienced God being near to me and scripture coming alive as I climbed and I could almost feel of just sort of an enablement and a strength as I was just by myself meditating on him. And that was like a really interesting experience for me. And that's how I know. So the first one is something that I'm naturally drawn to, right? I love Kung Fu Panda. How many of you like Kung Fu Panda? I like this master Shifu. You remember there was this scene where he does that water drop thing, right? <laughs> Every master must find his path to inner peace. I think sometimes when we talk about spiritual practices, uh, maybe this imagery comes to mind, right? This like, you know, very, uh, uh, like Lian Gong, you know? This kind of picture comes to mind. I don't know if that comes to your mind, but it came to my mind several times. And so I thought of this again as we delve into the topic for today, which is solitude. Okay, we're talking about solitude. Amen. <laughs> Yay. Who loves solitude? <laughs> Great. Wow, so many. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. Probably. So we're talking about solitude today, and uh, I'm just going to start with a prayer, and then we'll jump right into it, yeah? God, we just give you thanks that as a church, there is just this hunger and a desire to grow in you, and we pray for more of that. We pray for a deepening hunger that cannot be satisfied except of you, by you, and in you. We pray, God, that this morning, even as we go into uh, this topic, Holy Spirit, quicken our hearts, move within us a response of faith, obedience, and joy towards you and the things that you're doing in our lives, in the lives of people around us, those that we come in contact with. And we pray most of all, just a movement within our hearts towards knowing you in a fresh new way through fresh eyes and fresh vision and fresh desire. We pray for all these, Lord, not for our sake, not just for us, but for your glory, because in this, we become more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, solitude, I tried to find a statement that kind of encapsulates what it really means. So I'm going to start off with this. Solitude is intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God, right? And oftentimes, silence and solitude is talked about together because the correlation is just so strong, right? 
And as we go further into today, you'll discover why so and how so, right? But solitude is basically an intentional time. And then it's in the quiet and with, with ourselves, but it doesn't stop there. It's also with God, right? So this is the kind of solitude we're talking about this morning. Now, in uh, Richard Foster's book is this uh, sort of differentiation between solitude and silence. Can I have the next one? Solitude is the practice of being absent to people and things, right? Or separate ourselves from, uh, in order to attend to God, right? Give full attention. Silence is when we quiet every inner and outer voice to attend to Him in His sheer silence, okay? There's just, just something to add on to the definition of solitude that we looked at, right? Is this slight difference in the solitude is 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 being separate from or withdrawing from things and people to attend to God. And silence is just uh, how you carve out a stillness within and without, okay, so that we can attend to God. All right, and this is something I discovered that is not practiced by Christians only, right? Uh, maybe you and I know friends who actually love solitude, um, and it's just maybe it's taking solo trips, right? Go backpacking alone, um, go, you know, watch movies alone. Yeah, Matt's saying that because, yes, that's my top love to do. I like, can we go and watch a movie together? Yeah, can we go? And then like, I go on my own and you watch on the other side, you know? <laughs> just joking, just joking. Obviously, that was like at the start of our dating relationship, he discovered... I love watching movies alone, okay? <laughs> uh, that's just me. I mean, I grew up like that. But so it's practiced by many people. And this week, just randomly, I met somebody at a cafe. And uh, she was alone. And she was totally enjoying her time reading a book. And I interrupted her solitude because I started conversation with her. And uh, we went for dinner together. And then I got to know her friend. And her friend started talking about uh, her needing time of solitude. I thought, whoa, interesting. That's what I'm talking about in my church this Sunday. She was like, oh, really? Tell me more. Uh, but she wasn't a Christian, and she, but she was talking about the need for her to just break away and say, I just need to get away. Right? And I think a lot of us just hear or feel that sometimes in our culture. Or even solitude is also uh, what a lot of people do in different persuasions of faith to lian gonga, right? They go somewhere, and I'm, I'm jo joining a retreat uh, for meditation. I learn different, different things, mindfulness retreat, all that kind of stuff, right? So solitude is not just a Christian thing, but I'm talking about um, in Christian tradition, uh, there's this uh, group of people called the Desert Fathers, right, which really started from the piety of this guy called Anthony, right, or Saint Anthony, who from hearing a sermon uh, dropped everything, sold his possessions, and moved to the desert uh, to live uh, in isolation. So that's kind of from him, and there were people who started joining him, and then that's how Desert Father started. And from there, monasteries were built, and then that's how we get today, even until today, monasticism, right? And he was quite largely influenced by John the Baptist's lifestyle. I think that's where he, uh, also the political climate of his time, so he decided to go to the desert to live. And this is the best way next to martyrdom, how I can live out my life for Christ. Right? And that's what he did. And you've got to 
also remember a throwback even to uh, the passage about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, right? When Andrew was talking about fasting, in Matthew 4, verse 1, it tells us this, Then Jesus was led, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, right? This passage. Now I'm going to tell you uh, this thing that Henry Nouwen wrote in one of his books. We have indeed to fashion our own desert. Again, this concept of desert where we can withdraw every day, shake off our compulsions, and dwell in the gentle healing presence of our Lord. Without such a desert, we will lose our own soul while preaching the gospel to others. But with such a spiritual abode, we will become increasingly conformed to him in whose name we minister. And he interestingly uses this term, desert. So how is that so? Now, a little bit on the use of this understanding of wilderness, right, in the, in the Old Testament is this. It appears a couple of hundred times, and it's in, in Hebrew, it's different words, but I'm not going to go into those, but just Israel's wandering in the wilderness was significant and formative, right? And from there, oh, it's derived this understanding or this theology of what wilderness represents and what takes place in the wilderness, right? And there is this sense of uh, intense experience, right? So um, I found this in a particular website that describes biblical wilderness. It is a locale for intense experiences, uh, this stark need for food and water. Think, think manna, right? think quails. It is a place of isolation, right? Think Elijah and a still small voice. It is a place where uh, there was experience of danger and divine deliverance, like uh, Hagar and Ishmael. There is a place where there is renewal, encounter with God. Think Moses. Think Moses in the burning bush, right? In the wilderness, Mount Sinai, God revealing himself to his people. So there is this geography of wilderness, and there is this psychology, this understanding of it as a theology of what takes place when wilderness is mentioned. And so this intense experiences is associated with the concept of wilderness, right? And when we come to the New Testament, okay, now about 51 times, right, the word eremos was used uh, uh, in different gospels especially, but also in some of the letters. Now in New Testament, the word eremos can mean different things like isolated place, deserted, uncultivated, a place where there is no support of family or friends. Basically, this, this, uh, very, this sense of isolation, right, is what the word represents, eremos. So I want to show you a few quick verses of when this word was used in the New Testament about Jesus, okay? Then Jesus was said that we saw this already, the next one. Mark 1.35, we're familiar with this, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to Eremos place, okay? A desolate place. And there he prayed. Luke. Luke 5. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, Jesus, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And last one, this one. Mark 6. And he said to them, see this three occurrence of the word Eremos, come away, he's telling his disciples, we, if you have time, we're going to come back to this passage again, or why it's so significant. Come away by, our, by yourselves to a desert place and rest for a while. 
because he noticed that his disciples were tired. So he'll tell them, like, let's go away. So 32, they went away in a boat to a desert place by themselves. He intended to have them have some rest. But as they go, the crowds followed them. So this great crowd, and God had compassion on them. And Jesus said, they're like, like sheep without a shepherd, right? So he began to teach them many things. Verse 35, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. There's no Wendy's. There's no, there's just no food there, okay? It's not like you can uh, cook up something, all right? This is a, <laughs> so I was thinking of the game, Wendy, uh, Wendy. <laughs> Until now, our kids like, you know, do the subway, uh, subway. Uh, if you didn't go to Excel camp, you don't know what happened. Okay, never mind. This is a desert place, verse 35, and the hour is now late. Send them away. And then Jesus sent, answered them in verse 37, you give them something to eat. So that's what, okay, if we have time, we're going to come back to this passage again. But basically, we see this understanding of wilderness, and there is a correlation also with the understanding of wilderness in the Old Testament, okay? Now, what about here? Like, now, how has the church uh, practiced solitude, okay? As a practice, I think as I grew up, my understanding of coming away would be retreat, how many of you grew up with just, okay, church retreat? Yeah, most of us. And then later on, they decided that for certain meetings, it should be called church advance. Do you remember that? So interesting. <laughs> but yeah, church retreat is something that I grew up very familiar with once a year at least. It's a time when the, you know, most of the church will go away and we'll have time of worship and teaching and prayer, right? And encountering God together. Um, but as a, I think as church, we have also experienced, besides retreats, uh, perhaps moments of silence in worship, right? Uh, we've practiced that. I haven't heard a whole lot of teaching on silence and solitude, but there have been, right? Uh, and mostly, we are very familiar with the notion of quiet time, right? Uh, taking time, whether it's in the morning or throughout the day, carving out this quiet space and time and place where we spend time and meet with God, right? So that's our understanding mostly of silence and solitude. Uh, we're very familiar with the verse, Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that he's God, right? Um, all this. Now this is within, now draw our attention to the cultural climate where we live in, okay? Uh, I mean, even talking about Sabbath, we've already talked about how a culture is not one that is slow, right? even coming from a place where maybe it's perceived as a slower pace than Singapore, I'm not used to working slow. I'm constantly used to multitasking. Even when I'm on the bus, in the toilet, cooking, I just have to do two things at once if I'm not careful, right? And we're just used to this culture of hurriedness, achieving, constant, like taking off stuff, our to-dos are long, um, just mental lists, if not phone lists. Some of us are list people. We cannot do without lists. We have a list to keep track of what lists we have, <laughs> if you are that kind. And then we have, a, we have a list of reminders to remind us to look at our lists about our lists, right? <laughs> There's just some of us, not all. And then we just live in this culture where patience is not a, a very high virtue. Right, we're just constant, fragmented, busy lives, right? 
that's our culture. And I'll show you this video. Um, I hope it doesn't feel long, but for the people in the video, it felt really long. I'll show you this social experiment that many people have done, and this is just one of them. This was totally unexpected. Oh. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. Step to your marks, please. Be cool. Try. <laughs> yeah, that's like the longest four minutes. I think I've always known silence and solitude to be powerful. But when I first came across a video that showed this experiment, it really impacted my heart. I'm like, just standing a few minutes in silence. Sometimes the videos are about strangers standing across each other. And there is this power of connection in just not talking, but making contact. And it just tells you how starved our society is. And this is of parents and kids, their, their own children, staying together all these years. And still, there is this longing that, that only silence surfaces. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there, this, it's just, it's, 
wow, you know, and, and I was watching this again, I thought, I want to use this and just show you guys, because that's exactly what our society is like. There is this lack of connection, and, and there is just so much hurrying, that just a few minutes of silence does so much, right? And I would say that our, so our culture hinders the practice of solitude, doesn't it? But at the same time, our culture makes it so necessary. Our culture both hinders and necessitates this practice so much. We are naturally either voluntary or involuntarily isolated in so many ways, fragmented. Whether it is crises in life, uh, job transitions or life transitions, sicknesses, different changes taking place in our lives, whether you like it or not, there is a sense of a need of wholeness, unity, connection. And at the same time, and I would say uh, this is we are in a time where there is a crisis of discipleship where we are not in need of more clever people or gifted people, but deep people, right? This is how Richard Foster starts his book. And the show is quote, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is for deep people. Guys, we as a church, we are starving in our, of ourselves for deep connection with God, with each other. And what more to those who may not know God yet? personally, right, in their lives, or have not been touched yet by this connection, this knowing, knowing that God knows them, right? How much more we need to practice this because of our cultural climate. And so think of Eremos. It is a place where there is a revelation of God. It is a place where God chooses to self-disclose bear his heart to his people. It is a place where people experience a supernatural provision of God because there is no way you can provide for yourself in the wilderness. It is a place where people move from oppression to freedom, right? It is a place where dead things can come to life when God gives it, right? It is a place which sets God's people apart. Think Israel. That was how God worked in them, this, where God set them free from bondage to Egypt and set them free from bondage to their own inner slavery. And it was also a place where God gave them a purpose to know him and to make him known. And that's why I would say four areas why I would, I, I, we want to highlight that the practice of solitude is so necessary in our lives, guys. The first one is what solitude does, cultivating this intentional time, is it frees us from a bondage to people. I say this not in a bad way. We all love people, right? right? Except on some days. <laughs> We're like, oh, life is so good, you know? Except when there are people, right? Just kidding. There are, there are those days. Come on. I, maybe not for some of you, but I will be honest. There are some days when, you know, 
life is just better without. But cultivating solitude frees us from bondage to people. Why do I say this? I think there is such a fear of loneliness, but that loneliness expresses or demonstrates that there is an emptiness within us. Solitude is different. Solitude is that there is inner fulfillment. You're not afraid of being alone. You're not afraid of your own company. Right, we fear loneliness, but that's not healthy. There's no fear of that, and and it's because then people or the demands and the expectations or the need to uh, manage people do not control us. That we can t uh, be in a place of solitude or in a posture of it because it loosens the grip of human approval in our lives, being accepted or needing to belong. Not that we don't need community, but there is that freedom to embrace solitude. But this is where it's different. It's not just to escape being around people, but it is so that actually with solitude, you can be better with people. Right? Isn't that true? Bonhoeffer says this, and I've remembered it since I read it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer <laughs> says, Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each has its own perils and pitfalls, right? One who wants fellowship without solitude, you plunge into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Wow, those are strong words. That's Bonhoeffer lah. What do you expect? <laughs> okay. Wayne Oates says this. He's another guy who wrote nurturing silence in our noisy hearts, right? Silence then is not just not talking, right? Silence is a discipline of choosing what to say and what to listen. And it's the same thing that Richard Foster wrote. It is knowing what to say and when to say it, right? That solitude gives us that ability. Nurturing silence is the growth of discernment, right? Of what will be the focus of your attention, care, and commitment. And so Merton also captures this when he says, it is in deep solitude I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers and sisters. Right? Silence and solitude taught me to love my brothers, and, uh, my brothers for who they are rather than just what they say. Right? Solitude frees us from bondage to people so that we can be with people healthily better, right? Solitude not just does that, it purges us from our inner compulsions. Why? Because, you know, in that place where you are faced with just yourself and God, you realize how we are enslaved by our blind spots, our lack of self-awareness, our denial uh, of things that maybe God or people have brought to our attention, our disordered desires, our need for change, our need to, uh, uh, our, our constant striving, we, we come face to face with that because we realize that our wanting to control situations and people cannot be done when you're in a place of solitude because you're slowing, you're pulling back, you're letting go, right? There is a sense of surrender. I remember when I was um, 17, many things happened when I was 17. No. I, when I was about 17, 18, was the first time, and that time I didn't understand this concept, was when I first experienced uh, isolation. And, and it was not a self-imposed one, but it just happened to me. I think God was dealing with me in a very different way. 
Right? Since then, the way that I would self-impose my wilderness is different. Like I'll fashion my own. But this was my first time when I just, for some reason, because of certain triggers, I'll spare you the details. So what happened was I went into this two weeks right before a major secondary school exam. Two weeks where I would just I was physically withdrawn from my friends in school, teachers, family. I almost spoke nothing in the two weeks. I have no idea what came over me. But for two weeks, I did not speak. I just ate and slept. I was like a caterpillar, right? And it was just that two weeks where I literally would go to school, and it was almost big exam, right? So no classes were going on. I would actually put my head in my backpack and sleep in class, okay? That was my cocoon. I'm just giving you a picture of what happened. But from there, right, I was having an existential period of time where I was really questioning, what am I on earth for? I had no idea I wanted God in the picture, but he made sure that he introduced himself to me. <laughs> and in that two weeks, right, I was in this cocoon, literally. My parents thought it was the exam, but it was not. I was just, and then after the two weeks, I just came out of that and started talking to my friends. I had no idea what happened until today. Uh, I haven't really shared the full story to them. But from that experience, I realized that I was proud of so many things in my life at that point. I was proud of having the control or the perceived control that I could give this impression. I didn't care whether I failed, I didn't care what I did with my life. I was at a place where I had no purpose, no ambition, uh, and I was proud of it. Like, uh, my friends were like, oh, after this big exam, like you're going to apply for what course, what uni, what job do you think you want to do? I have no idea. And I was proud of it. I was proud of wanting to fail everything. I had just, uh, yeah, some of you can't relate with that, right? It's <laughs> so not how your family does things, but my family is very different, right? Um, I was proud of being proud. I was, and God showed me he needed my life to take a different turn. And he wanted, and that was from that point onward, God put ambition and dreams for him in my heart after that period of time. An unexamined life is toxic, right? And, but that toxicity doesn't show up until we withdraw. And there is an elusiveness to the peace and joy that God wants to give because we do not carve out solitude in our lives. It's a time when we, when we do that, God purges it because it causes us to reorient our life goals. I remember when, we, when I talked about the term isolation just now. When I was at Fuller, there was a woman who wrote a very thin, small book called Isolation. Uh, and, and she worked with, you know, the same guy, Robert Clinton. And he would quote her book, and then she would talk about him. But so, so in this book, Isolation, was where she talked about how leaders need to go through this period. And she was expounding on the whole notion of wilderness and all that stuff. And from, from going through even that class, what, I, what, what happened in my heart was, hey, I want to I be more intentional in my private time with God. And so what I did was then began to see how even while I was in seminary, there were moments when I tried to carve out and have this time when I isolated myself, uh, not just physically, but sometimes it's more like as a posture, but mostly physically in my room where I would just sit with God and just do that. 
And, and when that happened, there came things that God began to show me about me. And it was a time of like, like Mary at Jesus' feet. It was a time when Jesus was really showing me how my goals were disordered, how I needed to re-examine my heart and where he was calling me to be. He was needing to purge me of so many things within me. And it was only when I was willing to just sit. And there was a time when because of that, he said, you know, doing, he, he said X amount of time, this period of time. Because I was so gung-ho, like, you know, I want to be in the U.S. And while I'm at Fuller, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do this internship, I want to uh, do this. And whatever, you know, God opened doors of ministry and I want to work with uni students and this and that. I was uh, having this, this, all these notions of what I would do with my time there. But God actually said, you know, I want you to just be hidden for these X amount of months. I was like, what? What? And, and not speak. No, no speaking engagements, nothing. And, to, uh, and, and there were a couple other things that he wanted to commit to. And I was, I had no idea that uh, it was so hard for me to actually say no. Until that time, because I had never thought that God would ask that of me. And he had never asked that of me before that. But during that X period of months, as I went through that and I said no, and there were people like, Janice, could you uh, uh, speak to this group? Janice, could you do this? Janice, would you like to uh, speak to our group? I would say no. And over time, God just began to show me how attached I was to the things that came with that. And almost to the point where I'm like, I'm really enjoying this after the long period of time, right? I'm like, oh, good eye, I don't need to speak anymore. In my whole life. I'm very happy to be hidden, uh, you know, behind the cross. I don't need to speak, I don't need anything. I'm just happy to serve and support those who are doing that. But that's not God's intention. But through that, he weaned me of the need for any kind of attachment to this and it was so good for me and it still is right gordon mcdonald um, writes this in his book about ordering our private world god has much to say to us that we have not been hearing we were usually too busy and in places where the noise levels were too high god will not shout he whispers in the deep catch this only those who stop long enough or who are stopped long enough hear the text of the message from the deep that is when God would want to and he would draw you and maybe you can say it's not exactly voluntary but it is something necessary and as you go through it it's good Solitude frees us from a bondage to people, things. It purges us of our inner compulsions. And it also tutors our heart to desire God. We're made to enjoy God, guys. I think oftentimes when we talk about solitude, and even when I've shared it to some friends or, or people that I talk to, is that we get the sense it is a means to intimacy with God uh, but another way of seeing it is it, it is intimacy with God right it is in itself the end we were made not to 
spend time with God and enjoy Him in solitude so that, fill in the blank, we were made to enjoy God. That's what we were made for. And as knowing and, and, and being open to the mystery of God in our lives. That's what He made us for. This deafening silence only when we are with God Himself. Our brokenness, our falseness, right? The false parts of ourself becomes apparent, right? We're fragmented. Think Israel in the wilderness. When God draws them away, right, He was freeing them from Egypt, but not only that. Their murmurings surfaced. Their inner slavery to their own compulsions became obvious. God was not drawing them out just to free them from slavery. God was wanting to show Himself to them. And it needed for them to be in that place where they journey to know who God is in relationship with Him and where they would be open for Him to rule over them, right? That is what God wanted. And God was trying to tutor the people of Israel to know and just to worship Him and say, you are our God, you are our King, right? But we, right, we who are broken, we need to be tutored to desire God, to worship Him and gaze only on Him. Solitary not only does this, but it also enlarges our capacity for compassion. Or maybe some of you, if you prefer, it just makes us more like sensitive, right? We, it increases our sensitivity to the needs of the world around us. Why do I say that? The fruit of solitude, Richard Foster, the fruit of solitude is increased sensitivity and compassion for others. There comes a new freedom to be with people, attentiveness to their needs, a new responsiveness to their hurts. There is a sense of solidarity, as does fasting, right? With those who are in need, with those who are poor. There is an increased sensitivity to the injustices that happen around us, whether it is at home or beyond. And there is a sense of noticing where there needs to be spoken words of life, freedom, hope, courage, because we are more attuned to the heart of God for the world, for all of humanity, for all creation. And that's what solitude does for many people. And that's exactly what happened to St. Anthony, right? Who came from whom came the Desert Fathers. Intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God as we cultivate solitude, without which it is impossible to live a spiritual life. Let me say that again. Without solitude, it is impossible to live a spiritual life. How many of you are sitting there and you're like, um, you know, every master needs to find his own pathway to peace, right? Maybe solitude is not something for me. Maybe it's not for this season. Now, you know, right, as you hear this, there are different aspects perhaps that God is just stirring in your heart. Maybe your experience is not going to be the same as mine. Uh, no, not maybe. Obviously, your experience of silence and solitude is not going to be the same as mine. 
But it's something that God would want us to cultivate in some form or other throughout our lives. How that looks like can be different. But these four, that it frees us from the bondage to people, it purges us of our inner compulsions, it tutors our hearts to desire God, to long for Him, and it enlarges our capacity for the world. That is what it can and will do when we cultivate solitude. And out of that place, there comes a prophetic voice in the wilderness that draws people to him. This is where I love that passage where Mark 6 talks about. And I want to draw your attention back to this. Now in this passage, right, when Jesus tells the disciples, come away by yourselves. And what he did, essentially, this is the feeding of the 5,000 men. 5,000 men. There were women and children too. So there's way more than 5,000. Jesus told the disciples, you give them something to eat. Now, looking at this text, where were they? In the city? In the village? Where they can go to their kitchen and cook some stuff up? No. It was in this desolate place. In the wilderness, you give them something to eat. The picture that comes to mind, as you see, like there's five loaves and two fish that they ended up being fed with, with 12, basket lefts, uh, 12 baskets left. Right? You know that story, right? Picture, picture us. We are the disciples of Jesus. I hope you're not getting too solemn here, like so quiet. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this. Are we the disciples, what is it like to experience, if you were with the people of Israel, and God fed them with manna in the wilderness, and there is no way by human conception that they would have thought God would feed them with something called manna. There is no way, perhaps, they would have thought quails would be fed them. In the wilderness, God reminds us He is able. He is more than able to go beyond our human imagination. And that's in the Old Covenant when Moses and the people of Israel experienced God's supernatural provision. Now, come back to here. We, as the disciples of Jesus, right, we're in the wilderness with the crowds. And there is this Jesus wanting to draw them away for some rest. And yet there are needs around us, right? There are demands. There are responsibilities. There are things that need to continue, like eating, right? These are basic needs. Jesus says, give them something to eat. And with five loaves and two fish, bread, Jesus is almost like giving a picture of, in the New Testament, how the people of God experience His supernatural provision. Now, I want to suggest to you, if solitude is not something that sparks joy <laughs> when you hear the word, uh, maybe for some of us, we're maybe more naturally wired that way. It's just like, oh, 
little solitude. See, you know, I need more of that. But it's, it's, that's, not, that's not the point. But I realized when I was studying and just preparing this, that God highlighted this, is that in that place, we are able to experience God's supernatural provision for ourselves and for other people beyond your imagination so that in the wilderness, there is fruit, there is newness, there is life, there is provision, there is hope, there is something that is miraculous, there is something that is so life-changing that life will not be the same again. Now, I'm not trying to paint a romantic picture of solitude, but I'm just saying looking at this and the feeding of the 5,000, then there is this picture of like Moses and the people of Israel and Jesus telling his disciples, hey, come away, and then you feed them. I found that, wow, you know, God, thank you, because you are so good. In our intentional time where we carve out with God, with ourselves, God does this within our lives. And as a church, just think about the culture in which we live in, how much more important it is to know God in our solitary places. In making space just to know God so that we can be of effect and make justice in the world. That is what we need. God to feed and nourish people when we seek Him. He provides. That's our God. And so how can we practice solitude? Right? We talked about all this. How can we do this as a community or as individuals? I'll just flash up real quick some suggestions how you can do that. Right? How can you and I cultivate solitude? Now, annually, okay, don't take this as the gospel. Obviously, you're not going to. But just fleshing out some practical ways. Annually, it's something that you can cultivate if you want. I know for many years, uh, uh, when I first stepped into uh, uh, serving with the church on staff uh, back uh, in Malaysia, I did this at least once a year. Even when none other of the pastoral staff did it, I loved doing it. I would just book a place. Um, now, what I would suggest is some of you maybe you're like, oh, what do I do when I, when I go on this uh, personal retreat is what I call it, okay? This is one way you can sort of incorporate it in the rhythms of your life, okay? Don't book now, lah, okay? I mean, like, take time to digest first. I'm just flashing out. Uh, uh <laughs> some of you are like looking, oh, wow, retreat place, okay? So excited. I'm going to go solitude tomorrow. <laughs> okay, don't book now, don't book now. But annually, uh, I would suggest it helps perhaps to go somewhere familiar, um, or somewhere where you don't have to worry about so much about like logistics, you know. But the most important criteria is that there, that you can have silence. Okay, <laughs> don't like you know go to like <laughs> KLCC <laughs> 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 or uh, Las Vegas Street there. Um, but yeah, you know, book somewhere where you can have silence. Um, uh, you can have the space and a time of silence. It helps when there is a routine. So if, if, if like, this is entirely new to you, obviously you are creating a routine, right? But if it's not new to you, try not to like, oh, every year you have to change things. I have to go somewhere new and novel this year. It doesn't have to be. Actually, it can be sort of like, a, like, a, my, like my pilgrimage, my mountain pilgrimage. It's the uh, same place, same scene, but, you know, God has Rema, right? 
manner. And it can be that, it just helps because there is a, uh, almost like association as you go and you prepare yourself to go into, uh, go into that place uh, that this is my time with God. Right? It doesn't have to be. So annually is, is one way uh, you can carve out solitude as a practice. Periodically, I put this cause, you know, just because it's up to your personality and, and your seasons in life or, or monthly. Um, what do you do? Uh, we'll talk more in the LG notes. But periodically and monthly, I'll just flash up like, I thought this was interesting, um, the sample that uh, I, I uh, took from this site, Practicing the Way. Uh, .org. Sample one day, I called quietude. It's like, ooh, quiet and solitude. So this is like sort of what you could do if this is entirely new to you. The thought of being on your own for an entire day from 8 to 4 or 5 is perhaps something that some of us have not done before. If it really helps, this is merely a sample, okay? Don't follow it as a rule of life. <laughs> or you could follow it as a rule of life. But this is the excerpt from there, and uh, I'm, I thought, you see, like, there's one to two o'clock, take a nap. Uh, but essentially, it's not, a, it's not a time where you go with an agenda, okay? Don't go with, like, I have five things I need to do. Uh, by the end of this day, I must accomplish this. I must, like, hear these things from God by, five, like, by four o'clock. That, that's not how it rolls, okay? Uh, but just a sample because I think some of you, you're actually some of you are experts in this, right? You do this all the time. Huh? Supposed to. Oh, yeah. Okay, then it's just me. Lah. Then I show you, right? Like if I were to have one day, uh, the next one, the sample number two. This is more mine. Lah. I change it. Like if I were to have an eight to four, okay, it's largely the same, but I would take a nap first. Okay, uh, nine, 9 to 11 a.m. Uh, this, this was the case before I had children. And so I would say, what more now, okay? <laughs> Those who have kids, you will understand. I would go to something like this, already sleep deprived, basically, okay? And some of you know children also very sleep deprived. So, ta-da! Don't feel guilty about needing to nap. I just thought I wanted to talk about this because I realized talking to a couple of you, that napping is like, how can I nap? It's a retreat with God, you know? <laughs> I nap at least two times in a, <laughs> in a eight to four window, right? At least two. Oh, this is so th very good question. So this is assuming that uh, we are not taking time too long away from family, for example. If you just have like an eight to four, you take a leave that day, like a day off then you can go somewhere for like eight to four-ish, like that. So unless, obviously, if you go for a two-day, one-night thing, that's different now, you know? Or three-day, two nights. And I've done that before in the jungles of Borneo. And perhaps you would not do it the same way. I love being around monkeys. Um, I really do. That's why I kind of sometimes act like one. But <laughs> if you haven't seen that part of me, you need to come to the house more, all right? But so... I would nap, really, and, and it's totally fine as long as you're not napping from 8 to 4. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. But I... <laughs> well, if you can do that, I think, yeah, perhaps you really need it. Lah. Yeah. But I think one of the things that even a one day like this can do is you need to actually prepare your heart 
to re-enter and exit that solitude time. I know that for many of us hearing this, it's like, well, there's no way I can carve out that kind of time. It's like I feel bad uh, even for my family or I feel bad for my workmates having to like add up load to them because I'm taking time off. Um, so obviously, I'm just showing this as an, uh, a, a way or sort of a, a sample of what it can be half a day if it works for you. Or sometimes I realize it is very easy for us to just say, I have no time for this. Um, but we have time for like a, a lot of other things. And so if it's just one hour, then what will I do? And it's just a rhythm of how I can do this every three months, one time. Every three months, I take an hour off of it. Or every three months, I take like two hours of it. That's totally fine, right? And then there's also the weekly thing. The weekly, uh, how I can cultivate solitude in our lives. One way we can do it besides the annual, the weekly, monthly, uh, the monthly one is the weekly one, right? Perhaps this works better for you. Shorter spurt of time, uh, then you can do a weekly one or every two weeks, you take like two hours. Um, this is something that I'm negotiating now, like adjusting with life. Uh, in Singapore. And so one of the ways that this has exhibited, and I didn't realize this, and I've never done gardening uh, in my whole entire life until I moved to Singapore. And for the life of me, I could not figure out what is this newfound joy of planting things, okay? And not everything that I plant lives. Um, <laughs> just putting it out there in case you all think like I have like 20 magic green fingers. It's not the case. Uh, I have killed some. But that's not the point. The point is, <laughs> I realize that when I do have the time to sit uh, on a stool and just touch soil and just think about the plants, I don't talk to them, no. <laughs> no, but I don't, don't worry, well, if you do, that's, yeah, I'm not talking about you. I don't talk to my plants. Uh, but when I do that and I finger soil and I kind of house them in new pots and uh, tend to them, I realize that it just slows me down. It just gets me in this place uh, where I am free to be thinking. And it's not cooking, which is a different kind of skill set. But planting is a lot less brainy uh, to me. <laughs> I just do that. And it becomes a, a place where I actually carve out some solitude time for, for myself. So it's not happening weekly. Uh, but if it, even if it's once every twice a month, it's, it's good enough. Yeah, so find your way. Um, and then there's daily, right? There are different ways. So depending on your season, um, you can make it conversational when you're riding the bus uh, or you're driving after you drop the kids off, when you drive to work, even if it's 10 minutes. Um, it can be a good place. Yeah. And sometimes it's just one word or it's just number three, just solitude, tutoring our heart to desire him, just to sit with him just to know his presence. And so this is how we can cultivate solitude in our daily life. Can I just invite you to just um, close your eyes and we'll just close in prayer for a while.